All right, howdy, folks. Uh, we're going to talk today more to maybe the younger people out there. So uh, I've got to, I got to tell you, I have all these young kids come to me that are, let's say they're between the ages of 18 and 30. And uh, they're all wanting to get into the horse business. They're all wanting to get into the livestock industry, primarily the horse business, because it's, it's laden with, with gold buckle dreams and big promises. And, uh, and uh, they all want to find the yellow brick road to the winner's circle. And I'm going to just break your hearts right now. I'm going to tell you there ain't one. So, one thing that, that uh, just to start with, let me tell you something. Learn to take criticism. Learn to deal with it. Learn to take it. Learn to respect it. Now, there will always be critics. There will always be people that will tear you down no matter what you do. And, and, and that's just part of life. Okay? Don't feel picked on. They'll tear everybody down when they get their chance. But the people you need to pay attention to are the people that compliment you and criticize you. When they give credit where credit's due, and then they criticize you also, those are the people that you need to say, I need to listen to. And the reason being is because they're not just there to tear you down, but but they're not just there to pat you on the ass and kiss your ass either. So, um, because those the people that just pat you on the ass and kiss your ass all the time will tell you what you want to hear, they're really not making the world a better place either. They're damn sure not doing you any favors. But if they will compliment you when you do well, and they will criticize you or or harp on you, tear you down a little bit, whatever, pay attention to it. You know, uh, so people come to me, and they, they all want, you know, hey, how do we do this? How do we train horses, raise horses, sell horses? How do we do it, you do? Well, I'll be honest with you, for us, uh, we have to get up every morning, put the gloves on, and punch the bag, all that, or it won't work. Nobody's ever done, okay? There's not, you're never going to reach a point in your life where you can just get up in the morning one day and just say, hey, it's going to be easy from here on out. I mean, maybe maybe when you're 65 and you're retired, you know, but even then you're going you're gonna to be either on a, on a fixed income, limited to your retirement, whatever you put away. You know, if you put away $3 million to retire on, and live out the last, you know, let's say you live to be 95, you're tired of 65. That's a million dollars every 10 years. That's $100,000 a year. You're still on a budget. You're on a budget of $100,000 a year. A little over $8,000 a month. Okay? So, I mean, you can probably be fine on that, but, you know, you're you're not going to be able to go and drive, buy great big yachts and drive $400,000 cars and and uh, have a cabin in Aspen and all that shit. So, you know, you need to, you need, there, there's an old boy, 
named Terry Hymas. He's passed away now. But he lived in that valley in, in Idaho where I grew up. He was a cutting horse trainer. He's a pretty good one. Uh, won a lot. Uh, had his had his fair share of success. And um, probably even could have gone much farther than he did had he lived like where I do in Texas. Because uh, there's more cutting here. But he, he was good. He was very good. And he came over and gave me a few lessons and stuff at my place when I first kind of started getting into cutting. And he said something to me one day that that I've never forgotten, and at the time it kind of offended me. As a matter of fact, it kind of pissed me off. And now going back, I wish that I could have him tell me more. Just like that. One day he said to me, well, he says, you're going to pay your dues. And it pay my dues. What the hell does that mean? What the hell does pay my dues mean? And I was thinking the whole time it meant that I was going to go out there cutting and make really good runs and have the judges screw me over and not uh, not pay me. You know, not mark me as high as I should be marked and get screwed over. So that's what I thought paying your dues meant. And it kind of pissed me off. So I didn't want to hear it. Um, and then I kind of realized what he meant years and years later. And let's face it, you're not going to start out with with cutting, for example, or saddle bronc riding, or or bull riding, or barrel racing, or, or whatever. You're just not going to start out at the top. Nobody does that. Everybody starts at the bottom, and they work their way up. Some people seem to have a better knack for it than others, and you know, progress through the ranks quicker. Other people. Uh, like myself, have to make a shitload of mistakes before they figure out what works. So, you know, and that, that's what I love about showing horses is everybody is the best horse trainer in the world when they're at home. Everybody is. Everybody's a world champion at home. Everybody has a good horse at home. Where you find out if that some bitch is any good or not, and where you find out if you're any good or not is when you go to town to show. That's when you find out what you're doing is working. Okay? So, a lot of people think, you know, they go out there and they show their cutting horse and they think that they had a good run and they may be marked a 70 and they say, man, my horse is making some moves. He was being good. Uh, I should have been a 74 or 5. Well, that's really not true. Okay? Cutting just, just isn't that way. Now, there's a few times you might, you know, argue with the judge, was it a 73-point run or a 74? Even a 73 to a 75 would be arguable. But you're not going to go out there with a plain Jane, run-of-the-mill, penalty-free, nothing fabulous, 70-point run and have anybody mark you a 75 or a 6. Okay? And there ain't isn't a judge in the, in the country. Now, for those of you that don't understand cutting, when you think only 5 or 6 points is really that big of a deal, um, cuttings judged anywhere from 60 as the lowest score to 80 as the highest score, 70 being the middle score, which means there are no mistakes. It's an average penalty-free run, no mistakes, okay, which can be hard to do. A 75 is a big score, okay? I don't think anybody, I think Matt Gaines marked an 80 one time. Other than that, nobody marks 80. I mean, 78, big run, big, huge run, 77, huge run, 76, 75, 74's a good score, 73's getting pretty doggone solid, 72, not too bad, 71, maybe a plus point here, or 70, 
running smell. If a judge sees a 75-point run, there's going to be some shit going down. He's not going to mark it a 70. Okay? He's just not getting Because people that judge cuttings are cutters. They're cutting horse riders and trainers and owners. And they have to win X amount of money. I think it's 100000 you have to win before you can even apply to get a judge's card. So if you're going to stay in it that long, you're going to be... Uh, you're fairly passionate about the game. Nobody in the world can see a 75-point run and mark it a 70. Now, we could all see a 71-point run and mark it a 70 or even a 69 and justify that. But you can't get you can't get upset. And there's too many people out there that think everybody's out to screw them. And those are what you call losers. Um, and you know how to stay not a loser? You never lose. Well, how do you never lose? You either win or you learn. You never lose. You win or you learn. If you didn't get a check that day, then the entry fee you paid was the same as a fee for college tuition. It's just an education. If you choose to learn anything from a college professor, that's on you. If you choose to not learn anything from a college professor, that's on you. However, if you... uh, you know, you pay your college tuition and you go to class, you probably should try to learn something. Same with cutting. So, you know, and this is what Terry meant by paying your dues. It wasn't me because you were going to get screwed over. Now, yes, like Zane Davis says, you're going to win some you should have lost, and you're going to lose some you should have won. You know, and, and like my friend Toby Williamson jokes around sometimes, and he says when it comes to cutting, there's only two people that think they got, they didn't get screwed. And that's the guy that won first place and the guy that won the last check. It's a joke, okay? But it's a little bit of truth to that. But but uh, at the same time, you're going to pay your dues. And you're going to pay your dues in everything in life. It's called learning. It's called progressing through the ranks. Same thing with cow business. Now, cattle and horses are, are drastically different. For, the value of horses is greatly sentimental, Okay. The value of cattle is different. There's a market value there. It's what people are willing to pay for their protein, for their meat, because there's demand for it. We have to have it. We have to eat it. So most of the cattle in the United States of America are going to be worth pretty close to the same price, okay, no matter what's happening. If we got a huge drought nationwide, maybe it's going to drop the price of cattle right through the floor. However, um, like last year in Texas, we had a really, really good water year. A lot of water, a lot of grass. Uh market was decent. It was all right. Up in Montana and Wyoming and that, it was it was bad. It was dry. Super, super dry. So let's say a bred cow brings twelve to $1,400. A good bred egg and black Angus cow brings twelve to $1,400 in Texas last year. Uh, and in Montana and Wyoming, they experienced the worst drought in 500 years. Did that mean that those good bred cows were only bringing $300? No, they still brought good money because people knew they could put them on a truck and take them somewhere else. Uh, horses are different. Um, Mike Gorris used to tell me that a horse is only worth meat price. The rest is just what you can bullshit him giving you. That's partly true. Partly true. Okay. Um, however, there's there's a lot of other things that go into it too. Like, so like... Uh, Last year, uh, no, it was two years ago, I guess. Wes Ashlock has a really good two-year-old. His name was, uh, would she do magic? Maybe she was a Woody be tough mare. Billy Wolf bought it. Austin Shepard finished it through his three-year-old year. I think they give a million dollars, a million and fifty thousand dollars for it. 
just took over a million dollars for, for that two-year-old Joey. Austin goes to fraternity, does great go-rounds. I think he won the semifinals, gets the finals, marks a 224. Huge score. Huge score. There's three judges, so that's like 275s and a 74. Huge, huge score. Johnny Mitchell, I think, marked a 229 or a 230 and uh, wins it, you know, wins the fraternity. And Kara Brewer was second with a 227, I think. So what Austin Shepard did was not bad. It was phenomenal. Most years, the 224 would win the fraternity. Um, but there was a whole lot of due paying to get to that point. Okay, now Austin Shepard's an $8 million cutting horse rider. Uh, Sam Shepard's boy, great hand, great person, uh, as good as anybody that ever walked the earth to play the game. So um, he grew up paying his dues, cleaning stalls, loading horses, riding colts for his dad, doing whatever you have to do to survive on a cutting horse ranch and turned him into what he's into. Billy Wolf did a lot of other things. I don't know exactly what, because I really don't know the guy, but he did a lot, a lot of other things to get to that point in life that he could afford to buy a million dollar two-year-old. Wes Ashlock, the trainer, the original trainer of that two-year-old, worked his ass off through his whole life uh, to get to be able to train a really good horse, have an eye for quality, and then develop, be able to develop that horse into a good horse. A lot of due paying involved for that perfect storm. And even though, you know, that mare won third at the fraternity, which is phenomenal, she wasn't done. She went on and still won this and this and this and this and this all the way. So they're still showing her, still winning on her. She's a four-year-old now. So um, a lot of due paying involved. There. Nobody's just going to run down the road and buy a $1,300 cold out of somebody's backyard that might have gone back to Doc Bar one its eighth generation back and, and have the same results, okay, it is not going to happen, so, um, you know, in the cow business, you know, same kind of deal, I mean, you see ranchers, certain ranchers selling cattle every single year for lots of money, and then the guy down the road, he takes his gifts to sale, because the rancher buddy, he says, hey, you know, cow market's good right now, I just sold 800 head of calves and got a dollar ninety a pound out of a bunch of 500 calves, guys go, holy shit, if that's what cattle are worth, I'm going to sell some of my cats. He runs his cattle down to the sale barn the next week, and he's got 10 of them. And he really didn't feed them that good because he really didn't want to spend the extra money for the hay because it costs a little more than extra this year because the high-priced fuel to take his kids to little league games and uh, his calves go through there and bring it up to 30. And he's like, what the hell? They're black-heighted, black-hanging 500-pound calves, but what you didn't realize is, is calves like that were kind of pot gutted wormy looking and didn't have feed and the nutrition to be put through them as just a big rancher that worked his ass off at it. And his calves really should have went 600, but instead they went five. All the cow buyers seen it and saw right through it. They beat him up a little because he wasn't willing to pay his due. But if you will dedicate yourself to the cow business, if you will make sure that your cattle are the number one priority in your life, and you understand that what you get out of it is what you put into it, and you bust your ass to make sure that you fertilize and mow your pastures. Like here in Texas, we have to mow our pastures sometimes, fertilize them good. You worm your calves, 
cows regularly. You got good bulls. You didn't. You spend an extra thousand dollars on a better bull, knowing that that's going to return to you. You took good care of them cattle. Anytime one looked like he had a runny eye, you doctored it. Anytime you thought one looked like he just didn't quite be up snuff, you got him in and give him a little bit extra cake. Hey, you take them calves to the sale. You're still not going to get as much money out of them as the big guy. But after four or five years, them cow buyers start to look at it and they start to go, hey, every time this, this little guy comes to town with a dozen calves, they look like a million bucks. I think I'm going to start asking him what he's got. So you start getting phone calls. Hey, if you're going to have any calves to sell next year, rather than run them down to the sale and pay that commission, why don't you just call me? That's paying your dues. And there's way too many young people out there, entitled, millennial, uh, I mean, literally, they're just young socialists. Now, they can say they're conservative, and they can say that they love the Western way, and they can say that they're Republicans and, and not for socialism and all that. But at the end of the day, they're entitled little shits because they don't want to pay their dues. And I've had a lot of conversations with young people in the horse business, and, and they all want to fast track to get there. There ain't one. If there was, nobody would want it. That's why to win a big event in the cutting horse business is is so coveted. That's why the NCHA fraternity is such a coveted title. Because it's hard. You know, it's like Buster Welch said one time. Somebody said, I'd give anything to ride a horse like you, Buster. And he said, no, sir. You won't give anything, you'll give everything. You have to pick your battles. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And I don't know why everybody can't understand that. Now, some people do, but you've got to pay your dues. That's just how it is. It's part of life. You know, if you want to run for governor of your state, maybe rather than just stepping up to the plate and saying, I want to be governor, maybe you ought to try running for a county commissioner, town mayor. Then in the legislature, work your way up. Pay your dues. Okay? But nobody wants to. They all think they're just going to waltz right in here and have everybody just, you know, lay down and do it. And, and it's it's really not what you know. It's who you know that will get you by. But uh, you're, you're going you're gonna to pay your dues and you're going to make mistakes. And that's okay. As a matter of fact, it's how you get great. Because you're going to screw up, and you're going to screw up, and you're going to screw up. And then you're going to make, make something work. But then down the road, everything goes in cycles, bubbles break, the economy gets bad. All because a lot of people made mistakes. And you've already been through one bad economy like we did back in 2008, 9, 10. And you go, hey, I've seen this before. I'm not going to be a dumbass and get out of the horse business when everybody says they ain't worth it. Like they were 10 years ago. I'm going to be smart, and I'm going to buy it. Because instead of them average broodmares bringing five to ten thousand, they're going to bring five hundred to a thousand. Sometimes even two hundred when they fall down that low. You're going to buy in. You're going to go ahead and buy a whole shitload of them. You're going to hang on. You're going to grit your teeth. And then when this horse market turns back around in another seven, eight years, and the economy gets back, and everybody gets sick and tired of giving all the way to China and not being able to drill for own and flying over to Saudi Arabia to beg them sons of bitches for all that we don't need because we got all of our own. 
and everything turns back around because everybody gets their head out of their ass and we vote another good Republican in there. All of a sudden, you're ahead of the beast. Right now, everybody's buying broodmares. Everybody's buying stallions. Everybody's trying to raise babies because they say, well, what about so much? But you already missed the boat. I remember back in 2009, I wasn't really making any money. I was hanging on by my fingernails. I, I didn't live month to month or two weeks to two weeks. I lived day to day. We lived $5 bill to $5 bill. I'd made a lot of mistakes in the horse industry. I drove to Billings, Montana one night. Took all night to drive there almost. I, I got there at like 3 or 4 o'clock. Slept in my truck because I wasn't going to go pop 60, 70 bucks or whatever, how cheap motels were back then for a motel just for a couple hours. So I just laid the seat back and slept in my truck. Uh, got up the next morning, needed a cup of coffee, and I went in to see if the cafe was open in the cell barn. And it wasn't, didn't open till late. And it was probably 7.30 in the morning, and nobody was in that entire building except Bill Parker. And Bill was sitting in his office. It's quiet. Just me and Bill. Only two men in the whole building. Only two people around. And I went into the bathroom, used the bathroom, come walking back out. Bill was sitting there, and he says, hey, Scott, how are you? And I says, good. We made some chit-chat. How was the drive up? Blah, blah, blah. Finally, I says, okay, Bill, I says, I got a question for you. And he says, what's that? And I says, uh, I need your advice. I need some help. Well, what about? I said, I need to make this horse feel worth it for me. I says, really not working. I brought some more horses to sell this weekend, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, taking a load of horses from Montpelier, Idaho to Billings, Montana every single month and taking a load home and trying to ride them for 30 to 60 days and then take them back and resell them or whatever. And, and, and I'm just hanging on. It's not working. I said, Bill, how do I make this work? And I was, I had a stud and I had a dozen brood mares and we were trying to do that. We were literally at that time, we were selling baby colts for two, $300 and it was costing me six, seven, eight hundred dollars a year to, to keep the mare. So I was losing money hand over fist. Bill says, what do you got? What are you doing? How's it, how, tell me everything about your deal. So I tell him, and Andy listens to me, and I tell him about the mares and how they're bred. And he finally didn't tell him about my stud. I had a little pep to boom, small grandson. I have a daughter, Doc's Oak. He listens to me, and, and he says, uh, and you want to know what I would do? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, if I was you, the first thing I'd do is I'd sell all them mares and babies and, and that stud. I'd get rid of them all. He says, you got nothing. I said, okay, a little bit of a tough pill to swallow because here, Kim and I have been working on this, you know, for four or five years already. And, and all of a sudden you're telling me to get out? Well, yeah, he was. He said, you got nothing. He said, you have nothing that's going to impress anybody. He said, you got the same damn problem everybody else does. Got a bunch of average horses eating a lot of good hay. Okay. Well, believe me. The next three months, my horse trailer was full of them sons of bitches that did nothing but burn holes in my pocket and take the hay that cost the money. I, I sold my stud horse that I liked. I mean, I showed him in the rain cow horse a fair amount, won a little money on him, and, and I took him right to Billings, Montana the next month. The very next month in the April sale, he was in it. He brought $7,000. Today, that horse is probably worth $30,000, $35,000. He brought $7,000. I said, sayonara, you son of a bitch. And then I sold all my, I, hell, I had a bunch of them broodmares 
that, that I bought when things were higher and I'd give 800 to $2,000 for them. And I sold some of them for $150, $200. I didn't care. I ran them through the loose sale and they were gone. Goodbye. And then I took that money and I reinvested it in better horses. And Bill says, wouldn't you rather have one brood mare that made a profit than six that don't? Well, yeah. There you go. And so he, he told me a lot of things, pointed out a lot of problems that I had with, with the business. And I listened to him. I took the criticism. I didn't get mad when he said, your horses are shit. They're all junk. Some people thought they were nice. I thought they were okay. But nobody thought they were nice enough to sit down and write a big old fat check for them. You know? So I, I got rid of them. I started over. And it was the best thing I ever did. So, and, and when you did a good job on a horse, Bill Parker would tell you, good job. Good job. I bought a daughter, Anita's Wood, in July of 2011. She was a yearling colt. She was out of a daughter of Highbrow Hickory. Very, very nice young filly. The horse market was still down. Uh, she was a yearling. I get $300 for her at that sale. And Bill Parker says, good eye, Scott. Says it right over the microphone. Everybody listens to the whole crowd at that sale. This is good eye, Scott. I bought one smart Peppy at the same sale. He was the son of Peppy Sandbag, who a one time sale. One of the best daughters of smart Peppy that ever walked the planet. She produced over a million and a half dollars. That stud was worth, well, who knows what he was worth. The first time I ever saw him was in February 2006, and he brought 50000 or something at that sale. Okay, I couldn't have given 5000 and I looked at my wife when I saw that horse and I told my wife one day I will own that horse she never said how the hell are we going to do that what the hell she just said okay July 2011 one smart peppy a three quarter brother one time pepto prettiest moving horse I've about ever seen in my life don't see the salary I bailed in on him and I bought him for 6700 I took him home and we bred 40 to 50 outside mares a year to him for the next six years. He died in 2017 at the age of 22. But I owned him until he died. One of the very last sons of Peppy Sam Badger on the planet. Very first colt that one time soon ever had. And my dream was fulfilled. Had I kept those other pieces of shit, I would have never been able to do it. They would have kept taking money out of my pocket. They would have kept robbing me of my time and I never ever would have been able to get on top of things enough to be able to spend a measly 6700 you know now I could have sold that one smart pepper when things come back in 2015 I could have sold that horse for about 40,000 bucks and I didn't because I thought well hell he'll make me that much money in the next two years brief matters he did when I tell you one smart peppy bought the ranch I'm telling you one smart baby bought the ranch. But I wouldn't have been able to get my hands on them bitter horses had I kept doing the same stupid old thing, thinking that I loved my other horses. I couldn't get rid of them. Like Pat Goggins used to say, he was probably one of the most successful men that ever stepped foot in the state of Montana. Owned Billings Livestock in the public auction yards right there in Billings. They'd run over a million head of cattle through them two cell barns every year. Pat Goggins got a commission on every single beast that walked across the skip. He said sentiment has no value. 
And all this is stuff that these young kids that don't want to pay their dues don't want to hear. So if you're between the ages of 18 and 30, and life really isn't going exactly how you want, you probably really, really need to listen to this or listen to somebody else that's going to tell you the same freaking thing. You've got to pay your dues. It's called life. Okay? You are not going to be treated with the same amount of respect at the cafe that's at the sale barn by a waitress as the old guy that calls her sugar every week. Now, he ain't trying to flirt with her, sleep with her, or get her naked, or see her picture of her boobies or nothing. He's going to call her sugar because he has done for the last 20 years. And he sells cattle and buys cattle there every single week. And she's, he's the first one she waits on. Because no matter if he orders a cup of coffee or a ribeye steak, he lays a $20 bill on the table every single week and has done for the last 20 years. And this lady's 45 years old. And she knows that that one man has paid for her kid's school clothes every single year. So she's probably not going to treat you the same as she does him. And when there's two pieces of pie and y'all both ordered one, guess who's going to get his first? That guy. Because he paid his dues. And that's just how the world goes around. So don't be afraid to pay your dues. Don't be afraid to accept that, own it, learn it, love it, live it, and pay your dues. You know, back to the cutting horse thing. Let me tell you all something. Cutting is not rigged. I, have, I had a guy tell me one time, he said, cutting is rigged. I said, he said, hell, they know who they want to win it before the cutting even starts. I says, well, that's, that's a really, really good theory until the guy they got picked to win it has his horse run off. Or the guy they got to pick one second after the first guy screws up, his horse loses a cow or stumbles, falls, gets late. Maybe that guy has a really bad cut, muffs things up, switches cattle. If cutting's rigged, then how come I can sit there and watch the NCHA fraternity go rounds and pretty much within a half a point tell you what every single horse is going to score? Within a half a point, I bet you I can guess 98% of them did money. It's not rigged. And I'm not guessing. I've just seen enough runs that I can kind of guess. And I'm not saying I'm great because I'm not. I'm just a simple guy that understands where I fit into the world. At the end of my life, if I'm known as nothing but a simple rancher with a couple of hundred cows who love his wife and kids, I'm cool with that. I will tell you all this. One time, I was at a at an Applebee's restaurant just down the road a little ways from where Rogers Coliseum is. Texas is back in 2015. My father-in-law and I were together. We had my two sons, Porter and Ethan, with us. And a, a colored black man was our uh, waiter. And he did everything he could to take care of us. And even though he had just the simple golf shirt and slacks that the Applebee's workers wore, the uniform, you could tell this man had gone the extra mile to not only clean his uniform, but, but keep it pressed and, and look good. Okay. And he did everything he could to make sure we waited as short a time as possible to get anything we asked for. And I mean, yes, sir, and no, sir, and how are you, and polite and pleasant. I tipped him a $100 bill. And I told him, I wrote a note on my ticket, and... I said, 
you are the greatest waiter I've ever had in my life, and I appreciated the service. Right before I walked out the door, he come up and shook my hand and said, thank you, sir, that's the greatest compliment I've ever had in my life, and he had tears in his eyes. And I felt that I really, for some reason, I just felt like I owed it to that man to give him a big tip. I wanted him to know that he'd done a great job. Now, I'm not a rich guy, but a $100 bill wasn't going to break me. And believe me, the feeling I got from that was worth a million. So I'm so glad I tipped him a $100 bill. It made me feel good. It made me feel good. And I hope that that man used that experience to go farther in life. Because I can tell you one thing, he ain't at Applebee's no more. I went in there 30 times since looking for him ask him how he's doing. He don't work there no more. My guess is he paid his dues and Applebee's and he worked on up the ladder. One time my wife and I were in Billings, Montana and we judged a ranch horse competition for, for Bill and Jan Parker at uh, Billings Livestock at the May sale. This is back in 2015 or and uh, 16 right there. I think it may have been the year Bill died in 2016. I don't think Bill was there. We went down to Texas Roadhouse, got dinner. We were waited on by a, a lady that was pregnant at about eight and a half months. I mean, I, I really expected her to just stop and say, my water broke, I'm having a baby. Hugely pregnant. She forced a smile. She did the best job she could to take care of us. And you know for a fact she wouldn't be there working if she didn't have to. Young lady, maybe her first child. Just being tough and hanging on and doing what she's got to do. Had a wedding ring on, I'm sure. Husband probably worked hard, too. They were just doing what they had to. So I gave her my credit card. I paid the ticket. I didn't add a tip to it. We left a $100 bill on the table, and my wife wrote a note on the napkin and said, buy the baby something nice. Love us. She was a great waitress. She's not there anymore. Hopefully she's her mom. She's being a mom she'd done her part. That's just part of paying dues. So, for those of you that think you don't have to pay your dues and that you are owed this or that you are owed that, you're going to have a rough time. There's always going to be somebody better than you. There's always going to be somebody that climbs the ladder to success faster. Don't get jealous. It's coveting. It's a sin. Matter of fact, it's such a great sin. Moses listed as one of the town ten commandments. You know, Moses, Moses didn't say don't pick your nose and eat it. Moses didn't say don't fart a carload of strangers in a cab. Moses didn't say on the ten commandments. He didn't say don't order a drink at the bar and run off without paying for it. Because none of those things really matter. But if thou shalt not covet was mentioned in the Bible or in the ten commandments, then multiple times in the Bible it's mentioned. Thou shalt not covet. Coveting is jealousy. The reason that I think it's such a great sin is not that it's going to affect the neighbor if you covet his fancy golden retriever that always fetches a stick. That's not going to affect the neighbor at all. It's going to affect you. It's going to tear you apart. You will destroy yourself from the inside. That's why the Lord said, Thou shalt not covet. One of the Ten Commandments. So, you can do with this whatever you want, this podcast about paying your dues. 
this podcast about don't be afraid to work up the ladder to success. You know, I I sell the baby colts that I raise. I have about 20 head of broodmares. I have a really nice stallion that I bought as a yearling. We showed him, trained him, promoted him, won a lot of awards and checks on him all the way through. And now people are seeking his offspring. I spent a lot of time putting those broodmares together. I have no problem getting every nickel I ask for, and I sell every single one of them, usually the first day it's advertised on the Internet. Thus far this year, I've sold every single cult that I've advertised the first day it's advertised. And I paid my dues. So if you want to sell horses, you're going to have to work for a while. So I, I had to work for quite a while, and I had to I had to build a reputation, and I had to build a name, and I don't sell my baby colts for $50,000 a piece. But I get everything I ask for. To be right honest with you, it's no secret. You can look it up on Facebook, Hume Ranch, whatever. I sell most of my colts for $5,000. I demand a 10% deposit the day they want it, which is $500. They owe me the other $4,500 October 1st when the colt is weaned. I have 20 head of mares. make $100,000 on 20 head of mares every year. I make more money, more profit on 20 head of mares than I do 200 head of beef cows. But it's took me 20 years to get there. Remember what he what he said to the gladiator? I remember that movie with Russell Crowe, Crow, the, the gladiator? When the guy that buys him, he used to be a great soldier for Marcus Aurelius, and now, now he's, a, he's a gladiator in an arena fighting for his life. He's trying to win his freedom. And the slave owner says, win, your, win the crowd, and you will win your freedom. He had to pay his dues. So I told my son Ethan one day when he said I'd like to train rope horses and sell rope horses and make a lot of money. And I says, you want to do that? And he says, yeah. And I says, well, here's the deal, kid. You're 18 years old. You rope really, really good. You're a damn good horseman. You got a mom and dad that'll support you and do whatever we can to keep you going because we love you and we know you won't screw us over in any way, shape, or form. I said, you want to sell horses for a lot of money? He says, yeah. I says, go win a bunch become a winner, become a man that everybody says, that kid right there can head steers. That guy right there is a good hand. He's done it time and time again. Then when you want to slow down from rodeoing like Trevor Brazil did and focus on a young rope horse maturity program or whatever else, Trevor Brazil won his freedom. He spent 20-some years on the road being the greatest man that ever ever rope the world has ever known. He won his freedom. Now he can stay home, train horses, hang out with his family, watch his kids grow up, spend time with Miss Brazil. They can do whatever they want because he won his freedom. He paid his dues. Okay? And I guarantee you, if you think that his life was nothing but sunshine and rainbows, you're dead wrong. I'll guarantee you that guy could write you a frickin' book as thick as a goddamn pickup truck about driving all night here, nodding off to sleep there, colicking horses, vet bills, crippledness, tired, sore, beat up, trying to make the finals, trying to feed your family while you're doing it, shit going in hell in a handbasket at home because you're not there to take care of it, cattle getting out, horses not getting rode. And you're out there at Cheyenne hoping you make the short go because you either had to swing over him two extra jumps because you drew a wild trick. 
pay your dues. So I told Ethan, you want you want to sell rope horses for a lot of money? You go win a whole shitload, and then everybody's gonna buy the winner's horses. I had a young man ask me one time. He said, "Hey, I'm not a I'm not a top number roper. I'm not the best roper out there, whatever." He said, "But don't you think I could still train some good rope horses and sell them for a lot of money, even if I'm not the top roper?" And I said, "No." I don't believe he can. And he said, why? And I said, well, because people buy what wins. They don't want to buy what loses. I said, you got to be able to handle that rope. And I said, how are you going to be able to train a great rope horse if you can't out-rope the great ropers? Because I can guarantee you, no matter who in the hell you think you are, a number four doesn't have the first goddamn clue about how to position his horse to hammer one consistently every single time like a number nine, like a number ten. Even though they think they do, they don't. It is not comparable. What wins in the number 12 wouldn't have a snowball's chance in hell in the open in Stephenville, Texas. So if you want to sell them rope horses for a lot of money, you young people, you need to be able to beat them. Consistently beat them. And if you want to find out how you stack up, you've got to go best on you. You've got to enter. And when you get the shit kicked out of you, you don't throw your bedroll in the back of the truck and haul ass back to Timbuktu and hide out from the rest of the world telling everybody how you got screwed because you drew one bad steer. You stay there, you take your feet, and then you learn from it. What you didn't see was the same bad steer got roped around before in a fast go time by Clay trying and Jake Long because they've paid their dues and they know how to kick your ass with it. But instead, you're a goddamn crybaby. You're a pussy. You're a chicken shit. And you blame everything on everybody else. And you're never going to win with them. As soon as you decide to stop putting blame on everybody else, and you realize where you fit in in this world, and you realize that it's okay to pay your dues to stick it out. Remember that part on Rocky? The, the show Rocky Balboa, when he has that, he's an old man, and he has to go uh, fight the, the, the kid. He gets recommissioned by the boxing board and all that. Do you remember when he has that talk, that son, I'm with his son outside of the, the restaurant? I watched that a lot. And he says, life's not about hard you can hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. So this world will beat you to your knees and keep you there if you get it. You gotta keep moving forward. You gotta pay your dues, smile the whole time, knowing that every ass kicking you ever get, you learn from it. So that you don't be like a dumbass and repeat history. Anyways, I'm going to leave it there. Don't be afraid to pay your dues. Don't be afraid to step through the ranks. Take criticism. Take it. You don't have to take it from everybody, but you can damn sure take it from those that will compliment you when you do right. Those that will compliment you when you do right and criticize you when you do wrong are your friends. And most of these young kids today can't take it. They just can't. So, I'm going to let you go. Uh, I'm just getting in Fort Worth, and i got to unload a couple of horses. And, uh, I'm going to show here at Will Rogers. Um, they got this Cutters and Cowtown deal this weekend, and then uh, the Derby, the NCHA Summer Spectacular Derby starts, and I show again on Monday there in the 5-6, and 
when I get done showing this evening, I'm going to kick on over to the hospital and visit my wife and my little boy, who's progressing quite nicely, by the way. He's actually been able to get up, and he's learning how to walk again with a walker. Grateful for that. So, uh, God bless, folks. This is Scott Healy from somewhere on the plains of Texas.